morning, good morning everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live, barely, <laughs> of the other side of midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, kind of almost anything can happen, certainly happening tonight and this afternoon and this evening. We've had all kinds of electronic gremlins, of course, because tonight's show is going to be historic. Artemis is roughly halfway through its 26-day mission, unmanned test mission to the moon, and it has overwhelmingly proved, if you know how to look at the images, the existence of the ancient artificial ET domes all over the moon. Now, I know a lot of you folks have been emailing me and saying, where are the domes? It's because you don't know what you're looking for. And we have probably spent hundreds of hours, at least 100 hours, maybe more, describing very carefully, very specifically, what you should look for. You're not going to see little salad bowls upside down. You're not going to see you know, the moon basin Clavius uh, crater from, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey. What you will see on these images is a brilliant glowing line completely circumferencing the moon. And we're going to describe again tonight, one more time with feeling, what we're going to be seeing, what we are seeing on these images. However, before we get to that, I seem to have uh, somehow my other screen has gone dark. That is very weird, okay? So what I need to do is I need to get out of that. I need to refresh. I need to click on this. Sorry, folks, this is Backstage Radio. I have the intriguing feeling that someone is trying to interfere with this program because we've had all kinds of electronic gremlins and normally, we don't have anywhere near as many as we're having tonight. Isn't that special? Okay, let me go to this, and that will take me to the guest page. And then I click on my name, which takes us to Radio with Pictures, down below in my items. Okay, <clears throat> for those of you who are not familiar with the show, and we have a lot of new listeners, both from uh, my conversations with George on coast last week and with Clyde Lewis uh, earlier this week. So there's a lot of new people looking, and how do I know? Because our little globe, which is at the very top of the home page, is lit up like a Christmas tree. In fact, let me just go check it here, okay? And that means there are people from all over the world paying attention, listening to us, kind of, uh, uh, you know, logging into our home page. If I can get the darn thing to work, why is it not working? Oh, that's so weird. So weird. Okay, there we are. And yes, yes, the globe is lit up, including there's someone who's on a um, on a uh, uh, oil derrick off the coast of Africa who periodically checks in, and you can even see him there in the uh, tabulation of who's listening and who's not. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Keith is trying to reconnect some things behind the scenes, so that's kind of why it sounds like I'm uh, filling time. 
because I am filling time. <laughs> oh, this is going to be one for the books. I can tell that already. Because what we're going to do through the morning, we've got three hours here. We're going to show you these amazing structures that the Artemis mission, almost against its will, and I will describe what I mean by that, inadvertently because of some good souls inside who wanted us to see this stuff and grab it before it all went away or went into the big sanitized file because the images coming outside of NASA are not those that are going in. How do I know? Because all I have to do is compare them and you can see they are not the same. Well, we're going to go through some of that tonight as well. So for those of you who are new, to the other side of midnight you go to the other side of midnight.com you click on tonight's banner at the top it says artemis one confirms the ancient lunar domes and then under it a subheadline why should we give a damn that's the next three up we're going to try to show you why this should be near the top of your priority list if you want things on earth right now tonight which are really not going very well if you want them to change this is the biggest thing going which can change things. And you can believe me or not believe me, take your pick. So you click on that banner, that will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you'll see where it says fast links to items under that banner. Click on my name, that takes you down to the section of Radio with Pictures which features my materials. Uh, item number one, this is the connection directly to the NASA Artemis blog. It says Flight Day 10, Orion enters distant retrograde orbit. Um, that's the background. Anything you want to know about the, the mission, what's going on. There's all kinds of links there to ancillary material, to backup databases, to images, to videos. Everything is in that one link, and it's number one. Now, if you want to get more detailed, under it is item 1A. This is the official Artemis reference guide. It's a PDF. You can either read it um, in your browser or you can download it and store it and refer to it. It's like one of those uh, Johnny Carson routines. You know, everything you ever wanted to know about Artemis and didn't know who to ask, well, there's where you look. It's 90 pages. It's actually, that's kind of interesting because this is now the 21st century. We have a whole generation, if not more, actually two, since we went to the moon the first time with a human-rated spacecraft, i.e. the Apollo uh, program. You would think in that 40 years, give or take, that they would have realized that a whole bunch of people grew up who have no idea about going to the moon, no idea about orbits, celestial mechanics, uh, rocket technology, anything. Instead, the Artemis Reference Guide is 90 pages, of which a lot of pages are kind of big, splashy color images and graphics that frankly don't really tell you an awful lot. Now, by comparison, if you go down to item number two, this is the Apollo News Reference from the Grumman Aerospace Corporation, created for the Apollo program, for the half of the program that Grumman controlled, which was the construction and flying of the lunar module. That's the lunar module sitting there in the photograph with uh, Buzz Aldrin putting up the solar wind collector in front of it, and Neil Armstrong took the picture. 
If you look at that reference, if you open it up, it's a PDF, just like the uh, Artemis reference above it, that press kit, as we used to call them, is over almost 300 pages long. 300 pages, which is everything you'd ever want to know, not just about the, loon, the lunar module, but about the Apollo Command Module, the Mission Profile, Celestial Mechanics, even discussion of the origin history of the moon, why Apollo was going, what we'd be using it for in the out years beyond Apollo, etc. Uh, how do I know? Because that's item number three. It's called the Apollo News Reference from the Grumman Press Kit, The Moon. And the reason I know is because I wrote it. NASA, for some reason, and Grumman asked me way back then, and when you read my bio at the end of the piece, you'll see that really I have no idea why they tapped me on the shoulder. They wanted me to do, for the press covering this mission, the Apollo missions around the world, they wanted me to write the damn press kit section on the moon. So you can say perfectly legitimately that I had a tiny, tiny part of the Apollo program itself. So when I say that the uh, Apollo references for the press were infinitely more detailed, more useful, more complete, more synoptic, covering almost everything you'd ever want to know, I know whereof I speak. And it's really been a pain in the you-know-what to try to find out certain specifics about the Artemis program by comparison. In fact, if I was of a um, conspiratorial bent, I'd almost say maybe that was on purpose. Uh, but no, I wouldn't say that. No, no, of course not. Okay, item number four. This is so serendipitous because I was kind of trying to think about the frame to put around tonight's show. And it, it, I was going to focus a lot on the data on the images, how they have totally, amazingly confirmed not just previous Apollo mission data on the moon and the CIA data on the domes going back to Kennedy's administration, but they also confirm what the Chinese have been sending us from their unmanned lunar missions. And I know there are some folks in the audience listening who have this real bug up there, you know what, about the Chinese. Well, forget the damn Chinese Communist Party. That's a veneer on 5,000 plus years of recorded Chinese history. And that's shining through in them providing us, however they're doing it, with real data on the real moon which, of course, brings us to what really happened with COVID-19 and who was the victim of whom, and that's a very long, complicated discussion that we will not have tonight. Anyway, item number four. As I was preparing this afternoon for the show, uh, one of our listeners, one of our uh, devoted listeners, sent me a link to an op-ed piece in the Washington Post. Now, because the Washington Post, like all other papers, is desperately looking for money because advertising has dried up and subscribers are drying up. And so they they charge for everything, including what's printed uh, on the on the on the uh, Internet. But Keith figured out a way to copy into a PDF this very interesting opinion piece by an op ed writer 
And I can't for the life of me figure out why they wanted him to, uh, to write this piece. Uh, his name is David Von Drehl, Von, B-O-N, capital D-R-E-H-L-E. He's a regular columnist. He writes a, an op-ed piece, uh, I guess, every day on a whole bunch of different things. Anyway, this was an opinion piece he wrote on Friday afternoon, which says, quote, Artemis says to the moon, but it might simply prove our human limits. And then David Von Druhl um, spends several dozen paragraphs telling us why Artemis is a dead end, why humans can't live in space or on the moon or go on to Mars or inhabit the solar system, and they'd better stay home and just send robots because, of course, nobody can really live in outer space. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, oh, what a special timing. Because that, of course, Friday, Friday afternoon, was literally as the our Artemis mission successfully did a burn that placed the Orion spacecraft, the one that's going to carry people on the next mission, into what was called this distant uh, uh, orbit of the moon, distant retrograde orbit of the moon, DRO. Retrograde because it's going backwards on the backside of the moon to where the moon is going to the left. It's going to the right. It, the moon moves around the Earth toward the left. The spacecraft is moving in a in a um, clockwise fashion. And so it's called a retrograde orbit. It's where they can hang out for the next six, seven days and test, again, continuing all kinds of systems that will overstress the vehicle before, in a couple of years, they put people inside it. And it had been performing brilliantly well up until something weird happened after the outward-powered flyby on Monday morning. Because a few hours later, don't know whether any of you caught this, but suddenly on a spacecraft which has incredibly few problems, I mean, they're literally at the level of, well, this voltage is slightly higher than that voltage and they can't quite figure out. In other words, they're getting more power. The environmental control system is working better. Their fuel usage is less. Everything is plus, 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 plus. And then suddenly without warning, they lose all connection on Monday morning, just a few hours after this close-up burn, 81 miles above the moon, where we got incredible video before the burn that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the show, they suddenly lost all contact with Orion, the spacecraft, Orion and the service module combination, which has no people in it. Remember, they're just mannequins and instruments, and it's all being flown by very sophisticated computer programs, kind of like an Airbus on steroids. But they lost complete connection, both outward bound, you know, sending, broadcasting, and receiving from the DSN, the Deep Space Network, this array of huge 200-plus-foot antennas spaced uh, about 120 degrees around the world. So you have overlapping coverage and nothing out there in space is ever supposed to be get lost. And in this case, something just at the moon's distance suddenly just drops off, off everything. And for a incredibly agonizing period of time, they had no communication. And suddenly, like Spock and old Star Trek, you know, they 
switch from circuit A to circuit B, and bingo, there was Orion after exactly, wait for it, 47 minutes. And I looked at that, and I thought, oh my. Because you remember on the launch night, uh, or the pre-hours of, of uh, launch morning, when they were supposed to launch at 104, on the morning of Wednesday the 16th, and then they had some problems, and they worked in mightily, and they fixed them, and then they wound up launching. Remember when Orion and the Artemis One mission was formally launched from Cape Canaveral after the delay from their planned launch time of 104? At 1.47 a.m. Now, why is that 47 interesting? Because if you add 12, which is half a day, which is part of the hyperdimensional calculation, that's the numbering system, 12, 24, whatever, and then you add one more, they really launched in terms of uh, central standard time. Um, they launched in Houston time, which is where the mission is controlled, at a symbolic 19.47. So this is something to do with ritual. Ritual. They launch on the ritual 19.5. They launch at the time specified by the ritual. And then they have an outage after they successfully pass around the moon, sending back astonishing video images, which you're going to see shortly. And then they go completely silent, and then it turned back on exactly 47 minutes after they lose signal. Now, how do I interpret that? I interpret it as the bad guys versus the good guys in NASA. The good guys are trying to show us live what's going on. The bad guys are trying to keep us secret from what's going on. And the 47-minute dropout was basically a threat. If you continue to show us live, provocative images and the world, we will kill this mission. And they underscored it with a dropout of 47 minutes. Now, I admit that's totally, totally speculative, except even during the DRO burn the other um, afternoon, on Friday afternoon, they had literally maybe 20 seconds of live video uh, showing a distant Earth 240,000 miles away, as you can barely see, and they didn't even show us uh, any live video during the burn. They showed us animations that are supposedly fed by telemetry signals from the spacecraft. Now, the test of this model will be that we're going to be getting close to the moon again uh, along about this coming, I think it's Wednesday, uh, Wednesday afternoon, as they sweep down in their six-day orbit, and then they'll do a powered burn that will basically send them on a trajectory to splash down uh, six or seven days later uh, west of San Diego in the Pacific Ocean. During that close flyby, down again around 80 miles, this time they should be able to send us live video during the burn because the moon will have moved, the angle between the Earth and the moon and the spacecraft will have changed for going home, and so we should have, should have live link video 
during that close flyby of the moon, and I'm betting you dollars to Navy Beans, they don't show us a damn thing because they've been warned not to. Now, how did this all come about? And this all, again, is crucial uh, background for our conversation this evening. It all came about because several days ago, at, at two major press conferences, Mike Serafin, who is the Artemis mission manager, he's kind of like the captain, he announced that, I mean, some reporter, very enterprising reporter, said, why aren't we seeing live video? And he went through this long spiel that, well, they were recording everything, but because this burn, when they were close to the moon, was going to take place on the far side of the moon, they couldn't obviously transmit through the moon, so they record everything and we would be, it would be played back later. He also made a very interesting uh, statement, again, I went through this last Sunday, that, in, that they had to clear their video with something called ITAR, which is a State Department regulation about sharing American high technology with suspected terrorists in terms of arms distribution, arms control regulation, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously I asked a major question, which is what the hell does ITAR have to do with taking photographs of the moon? Someone's expecting that we're gonna take close up TV of hidden ET weapons caches on the moon. Yeah, really, right, right. I'm being incredibly facetious. But he made that statement that they had to clear the video, the downlink video, live with this regulatory group or committee or individual as part of a process of releasing NASA video. And last time I looked at the NASA charter, it said it was a civilian space agency. So why is there anything even on the spacecraft that would, would not conform to the ITAR regulations? Didn't make any sense. But he went through it twice at two separate press conferences, in essence saying, well, you're not going to get live video because we have to clear it. Then, on the morning of Monday, the 21st, within about three hours after we got off the air on Sunday night, I'm watching, obviously, NASA Select, and bingo, there pops up live video which we were told was technically impossible. And the reason was supposedly because they were going to be filling the downlink with so much data on the performance of the Orion uh, spacecraft that there wasn't any bandwidth left over to send something as trivial and superficial as live television. Yeah, right. Taxpayers are paying for the mission, but television is thought of as superfluous, to data. I'm sorry, folks, but live television of, to the taxpayer is data because without bucks, there's no Buck Rogers. That's another conversation. But anyway, despite what Seraphin and others had been saying for months and months and months before the attempted launch back in August, suddenly we're getting live television from a few thousand miles on the other side of the moon and the moon is getting bigger and the earth is moving into frame as the spacecraft is curving around under lunar gravity and we're seeing everything in real time and we're not supposed to be seeing it without somebody at some censoring television screen saying, no, you can't show that. 
But instead, we got it all live. And of course, I taped everything. At the press conference following the outbound powered uh, burn, someone very brightly said, Mike, how come, after all you said, how come we got to see live television of everything up until the 34 minutes when the spacecraft literally went behind the moon from the Earth? And he said, well, he said there were some really bright people at the Deep Space Network. Remember them? And they figured out a way to give us more bandwidth so we could broadcast that whole sequence live, which they did. And I'm watching the sequence, and I'm looking at the spacecraft getting closer and the moon getting bigger, and the first thing I notice is, well, it, it doesn't look the way the moon is supposed to look. And so I've spent the last week busily porting shots over and making the published imagery from NASA look like the videotape that I recorded live because the shots they've been posting on Flickr, by the way, Keith was able to put up the uh, Flickr direct link to the archive of the Artemis uh, uh, one video and and stills and the uh, you know images. And all you have to do is compare the video with particularly we've got one one uh, loop, one video loop um, on the main page that came through uh, Twitter from the Lockheed Martin people, the Lockheed Corporation, which of course is a prime contractor to NASA in a whole bunch of space missions. And when you look at that video, and I'm going to show you a still from it later, later on this morning, when you look at that video, the thing that you will be struck by, I hope, like I was struck by watching all this live, is how incredibly colorful the supposed dead gray moon looked from the other side. When you're looking at the far side and it's almost a full moon because the moon is basically lit by sunlight, the sunlight is behind the spacecraft and the camera, and in the distance, quarter million miles beyond, is the Earth, which is almost full as well. So they got to the moon essentially when it was almost a new moon as you're looking at the moon from the Earth all by design, by careful planning, by careful celestial mechanics. And I'm thinking they did this in terms of lighting so they would see, in fact, the lit far side hemisphere with the sun basically backscattering backwards at the camera as they flew behind the moon as seen from Earth. And the reason that's important, we're going to be spending the rest of our uh, uh, morning discussing because it's an astonishing, amazing sequence of revelatory images, which, as I said, by recording them live and using them as a reference. And that, that uh, Lockheed video is an example of what they were really seeing before they dumbed everything down, drained all the color out, desaturated it, so basically you'd think you were seeing the same dead gray moon that had been described during Apollo. And of course, the Apollo films, we never got to see anything live, and the, and, the, and the live TV from Apollo was crap, 
you know, the basis of the state of the art at that time. In fact, the uh, the spacecraft now can show us astonishing live video, which is such fidelity, such amazing clarity, because in fact, it is taken by a camera, which is something like 54,000 times the dynamic range of the Apollo film cameras, whose dynamic range was only 10 to 1. Well, I see we're at the bottom of the hour, and I left time here specifically so that we can, when we come back, show you the real moon and then have a most extraordinary conversation about what Orion fortuitously showed us live that night when they just weren't supposed to. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, November 26, 2022. We have a lot to get to tonight, so without uh, further preamble, let me uh, bring on all of my guests all at once. We will introduce them all by names. You can go and read their extensive biographies on the other side of midnight. Uh, But what you want to do now is to listen to me tell you that they are, in not any particular order, uh, Ron Gervon is not with us tonight. He's listening by uh, on the internet, and he will uh, be emailing his uh, questions or comments if he has any, because he is uh, he is without phone. He's going to get it delivered tomorrow, brand new one. 
it's a galaxy something or uh, I don't know. It's, it's 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 got all the bells and whistles and it's long overdue. But in fact, uh, he's not able to join us live tonight. So we was going to be kind of transmitting from the far side of the moon through something as old fashioned as email. And then uh, Keith will put that up in the Skype window and I will uh, read it um, if it's uh, well, no, I, I will read it. I will definitely be a good boy and I will read it. So we've got uh, Barbara Honiger with us. Barbara, as you know, we used to work in the Reagan White House. She was heavily involved in policy. She also was involved in getting female astronauts into the NASA space program. She's currently part of, in fact, I think she's chairman of the 9-11 committee to try to figure out what the heck happened back in 2001. Um, uh, We've got uh, George Lambert, our resident metaphysician. And again, all these bios are on the uh, uh, website so you just go to the uh, uh, page for tonight's guests and you can just scroll down. You can click on their bios as fast links and it will take you to all of them. Now, Robert Morningstar was supposed to be with us, but he has suffered some kind of, he calls it Julius Caesar's disease, which is his made up name. He has been beset by some kind of pains in his spine and his shoulder and he's been under treatment and it, there was a respite for a while but there's been a recurrence, so I think he's listening. And um, if, if he's inspired, he may call in, and then again, he may not. So uh, Robert is also a casualty. Uh, we've got Andrew Curry, who, of course, is our resident uh, illustration expert for the other side of midnight. Andrew has worked in Hollywood. He's done commercials. He's done Super Bowls. He's done features. Um, again, all these people's bios are on the uh Uh, Other Side of Midnight website. And finally, David Sarita is with us. Now, the reason that I wanted David to come back, besides his extensive experience with um, uh, Giza and with uh, uh, thaumaturgical texts and decoding of ciphers and numerical sequences and the recursive discovery of uh, things like sacred cubits in ancient sites, and their measurements around the world is that David was the first guy to send me a a a frame grab from what NASA had put out, and he realized as well that there was something wrong. So he simply increased the saturation a bit and brightened it a bit, and lo and behold, it matched the video. And he he made a very important point, which of course I know, but the audience may not. So let me underscore this. Crucially, when you brighten or increase contrast or uh, add saturation to a color image, you're not adding any data. All you're doing is with whatever computer program you're using is you're reaching into the data levels of the image and you're bringing out, making more visible for the human eye, the data that's already stored in the image. And if you try this with a black and white image, nothing happens. It stays black and white, black and white, black and white. You can max it out. You can blow out all the highlights. You can make the shadows brilliant white. You're not going to get color. The only way you can get color from an image is if it's inherently stored digitally in the image coding. And all you're doing with some program, some algorithm, is asking it to come out forward, to brighten up, to become more visible, to basically increase the saturation 
as they as the, the colorist people talk about it relative to blacks and whites so what david did was he sent me a an image from orion taken on the back side of the moon as it's curving around and a prominent large basin on the left-hand side of the moon is seen from earth called mari oriental uh, was visible in the center of the disc and he said what do you think of this and so david what did you see and why did you send it to me and what do you think now well first i want to point out because you really blew my mind when you said there was exactly a 47 minute blackout <laughs> because that's 2820 seconds divided by 360 degrees in a circle is 7.83 the tesla schumann resonance so there's something really going on here this is this is very precise of course it is um, because they can't do a damn thing without a ritual and even the bad guys are going according to the ritual you know they, they I know I mean exactly 47 minutes is 2820 seconds divided by 360 mm -hmm. degrees is 7.83 so we know that there's code there and who designed this I mean is 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 a mystery that we'll 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 get to the bottom of. Well, no one, no, it, it's not a mystery. There are good guys and bad guys inside NASA. The bad guys right. are the Nazis. Somebody sending us a message. The question is, did did ETs? They, no, 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 no. They weren't the sending thing? us. They were sending this. As I model this, this was the bad guys telling the good guys, if you ever pull another stunt like this, giving the Earth live television during this mission of what's on the moon. This mission is toast. The Artemis program is toast. You'll never see another sunrise. In other words, it was a threat couched in the ritualistic numbers that these people talk to each other in. Right. I know. I know. At the 19 point. So the colors, okay, you have RGB color systems, red, green, blue, and you have CMYK. So this is, you know, these images coming in. I mean, this is a $20 billion mission <laughs> spent so far. And you got GoPros out there, which I'm really upset about. I would have Hasselblad digitals out there when you're spending that kind of money. But nevertheless, um, you're right. There's, I mean, I was an expert black and white photographer, master printer. I won tons of awards. I was a, I was a um, professional photographer. And I know everything about film and, and digital. So when if there's color, there's a lot of possibilities of why we're seeing color in the imagery. First of all, when I see an image that's overexposed, like where the moon is too bright, the first thing I did is dim it down a bit in Photoshop and I started to see color. Mm -hmm. I only increased the saturation by a tiny bit. Mm. And as you noted in the email to me, Richard, it's almost like a prism. Like, you know, when you look at your color spectrums um, coming across the moon from left to right, it, it it's, I mean, you've got your greens and you've got your cold colors. You've got these very soft, bright, um, um, it's like a luminosity over certain spots that where there's a crater and this this type of luminosity has a little bit of blue in it which could mean um a structure made of glass or something is causing that i don't know but then you have the warmer spectrum right that you were you were talking about so again there cannot be color that isn't there 
I mean, it, the color is there. It's in the image. It's in the file. Yeah. And what they did is they tried to suppress it. Even the video that I saw compared to the Lockheed Loop, which is posted on our main page up near the NASA TV section. Look at that and then compare it to the video on the Flickr link, which is archive video and stills from NASA for out of uh, uh, Johnson Space Center. They're deliberately doing everything they can to suppress the color because the moon is supposed to be gray. It's supposed know, and to now they're giving us the close-ups on the Flickr of the craters are very high contrast. Well, there. those are those are the black and white, what they call the optical nav camera. And what they've right. done on those is they've deliberately overexposed them, oversaturated them, so the highlights blow out. Right. And, and and there's almost no shadowing. And in other words, they're giving us deliberately bad images. I know, no be, detail at all. Because Nothing. they don't want us to see what's really there. So let me go, let me kind of go uh, systematically, because people who may not have been part of our conversation last week who joined us because of listening to me on Coast or on Clive's show, let's quickly go through. Item number five in my radio pictures. This is the uh, link to the CIA secret Corona spy satellite program set up in the 1960s by President Eisenhower in answer to um, the Khrushchev's turndown of what was called the Open Skies Proposal, where we would fly U-2s over the Soviet Union, counting missiles and airfields and all that, and they would fly aircraft over the U.S. doing the same thing. We would both have the same database, and we would come to the negotiating table about arms reductions and all that, each knowing what the other side had. And the Soviets, the communists, the Premier Khrushchev, said, yet. And so Eisenhower turned to the CIA and he says, well, uh, this was in the, in the time frame that Francis Gary Powers in the U-2 was shot down, which shot down, uh, um, you know, basically any, any chance of a, a summit, a, a whole presidential uh, Soviet summit was canceled over the shootdown of Francis Gary Powers in a U-2 high-altitude, 70,000-foot uh, reconnaissance aircraft, the U-2. So Eisenhower turned to the CIA. The CIA said, well, we can create satellites. And with the Air Force, they did. It was called Project Corona, which is incredibly uh, double-meaning and very Emily Dickinson. And so in five and six, you see the geometry but what you don't see is why there's a third panel, because the Corona program was supposed to be a spy satellite program looking down at the Soviet Union at missile silos, industrial centers, troop movements, uh, rocket launches, aircraft, bombers, all that. And yet when I was leaked a set of images from Project Corona, long story, no time tonight to tell it, um, I found that every single frame on the on the film I was I was leaked was of the moon, which is what that third panel in item number six is, looking from Earth orbit across a quarter million miles of space at the moon and taking pictures on a special order film from Kodak. That's what number seven is. This is a sample of the special order infrared ultraviolet film. And what you want to do is you want to look um First of all, you want to look around the edge of the moon, and you see that bright ring, and then in the bottom right, you'll see a an enlargement, 
with slight curvature, and then you see that bright ring enlarged, hugging the curving horizon called the lunar limb of the moon. That should not be there. That was the CIA's first indication that, in fact, there were incredibly massive ancient structures made of glass covering, wait for it, the entire moon. And when I tell people this, they look at me like I've, I've landed from Mars because, obviously, with our technology, we can't imagine doming in even a city, let alone an entire planet 2,000-plus miles wide. Remember my friend Arthur C. Clarke's famous third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. This is a technology that to us looks like magic. And for some reason, whoever owned the moon before it was ours, they decided to dome in the whole damn moon. It's like taking a soccer ball or a beach ball and covering the entire surface in saran wrap. Not one layer, not two layers, but three or four layers. They're spaced miles apart, and you can see this in high-res images all the way back before Apollo uh, at the edge, at the lunar horizon. So why do we get that bright ring at the, at the horizon? Well, that's where item number eight comes in. Click on that. That shows you the geometry. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're on the Earth or you're in a spacecraft, but if you're looking at the moon with the sun behind you, like the full moon, doesn't matter what hemisphere it is, the glass is going to be most visible at the edges because of a phenomenon called backscatter. And I've got the perfect person to talk about backscatter tonight. Her name is Georgia Lambert. And besides being our resident metaphysician, Georgia is one hell of an artist, and she's going to talk to you about optical technologies that go back hundreds of years in the great masters recreating realistic scenery and what they did to create essentially lunar dome backscatter on Earth in classical oil paintings. Georgia. Yes, hello. Good evening. <laughs> I I think I've got uh, an explanation for that beautiful, stunning image that uh, David sent. It, it's your item number 10, yep. Richard, Yep. if people will look at that. Uh, when I saw that, I understood exactly what was going on and why those particular colors, that sort of pinkish purple and that mm -hmm. bluish green. So give me a moment and let me lay this out. Hey, so, we got two and a half hours. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So before the Renaissance, paint was flat. If you lived in ancient Greece or Rome and you wanted to paint murals on your walls, you mixed up your pigment, uh, ground earth or stone or something like that. You mixed it with a little egg. You, you painted it into wet plaster. When the plaster dried, you had a fresco. But the color was flat. In the Middle Ages, they painted on wood. They painted on vellum. Again, grinding your pigment and mixing it with oil and a drying agent, turpentine, and they painted. And the color was flat. Well, the Renaissance comes along, and they start to think about light. And they, for instance, uh, da Vinci was the first one to really 
grok that when evening happened and the light started going away colors changed trees started to go gray there's a very famous uh, early painting of his called the annunciation where the angel is telling mary she's going to give birth to jesus where the trees in the background are all gray because it's evening this was revolutionary and this led to an amazing technique called glazing now the way this worked is you start with a bright white background uh, if it's wood if it's canvas, it's painted, it's gessoed so that it's bright, bright white. The technique then is you mix up your color, again, depending on the color you're using, ground, wood, or stone, or whatever, or the more expensive colors, gold, or lapis lazuli, um, and you mixed it with oil, and you painted, and when it dried, you put a layer of varnish on it. Then you did another layer of very soft, transparent color. It dried, you put a varnish on it. Sometimes paintings would take 20 or 30 layers of this. So it was extremely time consuming. But what the technology did was, as you looked at that painting, the, the light that you're looking with through your eyes is going through all those transparent layers. It's hitting the white background and it's bouncing back up to you through all those layers, which gives the color a jewel-like opalescent quality, a living quality that you can't get any other way. The only modern uh, artist to do this was Maxfield Parrish with his paintings, not his illustrations in magazines or uh, or books or his posters, but his actual paintings. He would have like 30 paintings going all at the same time because every layer had to dry. The only other medium that does this is glass. <laughs> and so what we're what we're looking at, is think of what gla what sunlight does to glass on this planet. We've got sea glass or desert glass in India that's in shades of green. In the American Southwest, you put glass bottles out, they turn purple. Depending on the uh, qualities that make up the glass itself, sunlight going through glass is going to do this now well it, 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 it's technically it's the impurities in the glass which are yeah. metals metal exactly. ions and depending upon the metal whether it's aluminum or iron or boron or silica in other words each each metal will change the tint of the glass a different color when it's hit exactly. with ultraviolet radiation Exactly. This is why that famous Venetian glass, that blood red glass, you get. You have to put gold into the glass to get that color. Mm. That's what makes that color. But the thing about the moon is it's curved. So if you're looking at a, at a painting that's glazed, you're looking through layers going down, bouncing off the white background and coming up, and it's all through the same layers. But if you've got a curved surface then the ones that are coming back up to your eye are slightly off-center to the ones that you're looking down with, which gives it not only a depth and a richness and a jewel-like quality, but an opalescent quality that can shift and change with your perspective. 
The moon is essentially a 2,000-mile diameter jewel in space covered with glass on the front side, the side that we see, it's almost eroded away. There's a reason for that. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But on the other side, the far side, it's in much better, almost pristine condition. And NASA is desperate for us not to realize this in the middle of a mission where billions of eyes are watching every frame, every video, every hiccup from the people running the Artemis One mission back to the moon. Exactly. And, I mean, only glass could, could come up with that kind of color. The one image that I didn't have time because I had other technical issues I was solving, um, there are some very famous glass structures on Earth, like the Victorian palace that was built for World's Fair back in the last century. There's another one in Spain, which I've got pictures of. And what you see is a, a huge Victorian glass structure uh, with an iron you know, framework with panel after panel after panel. And what you can see on some of the panels, if you zoom in, you see this gentle, opalescent, delicate, subtle shades of green and blues and mauves and pinks. And you get that by mixing the three primary colors in a rainbow when you have refraction, like in a prism. When you mix them and you spray them out, you get these subtle secondary colors. But in this case, it's secondary colors on a planetary scale. It's mind-boggling. I know. And there's the hot spots, Richard. There's these really soft, shiny hot spots. I mean, I'm zoomed in on the image, you know, from the, you know, that shows the color spectrum. They're very bright and they're highly reflective. It's almost like if you took a picture of a glass sphere and you use lighting in the room, you would get these little hot spots from the light. Well, so think about it this way. The moon has been sitting in space for millions of years. We're told four and a half billion. It wasn't a satellite of Earth for all that time. It was brought here much more recently. Another program, okay? Every time something hits it, it causes a crater, right? On the front side, most of the impacts are on the surface. On the far side, because the glass is so much more preserved, you're seeing the, the meteor strikes into the glass and those rays are caused like firing a bullet hole through a windshield. You're seeing the splash pattern in the destruction of the glass by the cratering of impacting objects. It's like right. when, a, when a pebble hits the windshield yes. of your car. Yes. Except Is that what you're saying these bright spots are? These, yes, these they're all you, they're they're three dimensional. Again, I don't have you know, I'm divided between doing a show and doing research and it, sometimes the research suffers. So in future programs I will lay out with specific NASA imagery, Chinese imagery, you know, Israeli imagery. You know, I didn't have time to put up the three separate nations that have all now photographed the far side of the moon in color. 
And they're all the same color, except they're nothing like Apollo, because the film all came through one guy, Dick Underwood, at the laboratory in Houston. And under orders, I'm sure, Dick Underwood drained all the damn color that the astronauts saw on the backside of the moon, and they were ordered to basically describe it as dead gray. Right, and there, there's another image I sent you that I found on the internet taken from Earth that shows the same color we're looking at now, by the way. Well, Everybody you have showed. to do a lot of finagling with photography and exposures and phasing and, and lunar phase angles and all that to get equivalent color on the, on the near side because the glass on the side we're seeing is almost gone. But the glass on the far side is incredibly good condition. That's why I've been looking forward to Artemis viewing what it's seeing. So let, let, let's move on here because we have lots of images and the story is in the images and we've got four minutes till the top of the hour. So if you look at the curved moon from the CIA image taken back in the 60s, number eight, and you look at the curved moon at the bottom of number 10 from David's image, Notice the incredible similarity of the brilliant horizon up to and including the thickness covering that portion of the moon, which is simply on the left, rotated 90 degrees and placed at the bottom of the image. So now we come to number 11. So Artemis is approaching the moon in this long sweeping curve that brings it in from the far side. And you can see in 11, the Earth is back there a quarter million miles away. The spacecraft, which is Orion in the upper right, is moving down toward the left in orbit. And the moon, because of parallax and opposite geometry, is apparently moving to the upper right. Okay? So what's going to happen is the moon is going to sweep closer and closer and closer to the Earth, and eventually it's going to cover it. Now, one of the weird things is all of the NASA television and all of the images they posted they're posting upside down. For some reason, they don't want people to have a three-dimensional spatial orientation the way we look at the moon on Earth, the way the moon orbits the Earth. In other words, they're doing everything along the way to make this as confusing and hard to follow as possible, which, of course, completely contravenes their congressional charter. Someone someday should sue these people because they're breaking the law. Anyway, we are at the top of the hour. Why don't we hold it there? My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, you will catch it as we kind of move along here. What we're doing is we're going tonight to talk about what there is in terms of the Orion spacecraft Artemis 1 mission, which is showing us that we in fact are orbited tonight by a formerly inhabited moon and by beings who could build on a scale that literally could contain entire worlds. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. 
Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.